following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. Today's sermon text is John 3, 16 through 21. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is God's word. Amen. How are we doing, folks? How are we doing? All right. Praise the Lord. All right. Talk to me. All right. So we're going to talk John 3.16 this morning. Um, and, and I'm really, really excited to talk John 3.16 because John 3.16 is one of those uh, just foundational passages of Scripture that most people know, uh, believer, unbeliever, Christian, non-Christian, they know John 3.16. It is well established in, um, in American culture, at least, and there is one particular reason that is even more established in American culture than what it was prior to. Now, we, most of us, Amer- uh, most Americans, we profess Christianity as our faith. And so because of that, John 3.16 is obviously very popular to us. But also, uh, most Americans profess another thing as very important to them. Anybody know what that is? Sports, football, basketball, golf, soccer, hockey, all that kind of stuff. And, and, and there was a gentleman in the late 70s, his name, his name was Roland, Roland Stewart, all right? And so Roland Stewart, he started out, being called the Rainbow Man, all right? And the reason he was called the Rainbow Man is because Roland Stewart would go show up at games with, with this big afro, rainbow afro, all right, which is, uh, which is already strange. And he's a white guy with a rainbow afro, which is really strange. I mean, it's just throwing people off. So he would show up at these games and do real wacky and zany stuff. And, and then Roland got saved and begin to profess Jesus Christ as Lord. And when he began to profess Jesus Christ as Lord, he said, I want to make, make God's name known in, in a very peculiar way. And so he would start showing up at games instead of with his rainbow wig, he would show up at games and he would put up the sign that says what? John 3.16, right? And he would show up at all kinds of games. He would show up at, he would show up at football games in John 3.16. There it is. He would show up at NBA games, John 3.16. He would show up at, he showed up at so many games that people started looking, the cameraman would start looking for, the, for him so that they could redirect their cameras so that they wouldn't catch him in a live broadcast. That's how much he showed up at these games, all right? And so that's a good thing, but, but, but Roland also had some other stuff that, that he had going on. So Roland Stewart not only uh, was, was, was doing this, but he was also 
um, you know, later on kind of doing some wacky stuff like planting stink bombs into public places and letting them explode and, and even being arrested for kidnapping and, and all that kind of stuff. And eventually Roland and, and his story kind of faded off and, and you and I still see every once in a while John 3.16, you know, showing up at games and, and, and we never understood why. What I'm grateful for is that John 3.16 is not confined to the man, nor is it confined to the sign. Amen. Because if John 3.16 was confined to the man, well, obviously he took a turn for the worse, and that wouldn't be good for us. If John 3.16 was confined to the sign, well, I'm starting to see Stone Cold, three, well, I used to see Stone Cold 316 when Stone Cold Steve Austin was a famous wrestler. The point is that we don't live John 3.16 because we saw it in a sign. We live John 3.16 because the sign has been written in us. And I, and I want to speak to you about what it really means. The depth and the weight of God's love is what we're going to talk about this morning. The depth, the weight, the breath of God's love. So I want to start by talking about the object of God's love. The object of God's love. For God so loved the world. Where, where is God's attention, where is his love pointing to? It's pointing to the who? It's pointing to us, you, me, the world. God's object for his love is the world. If we were to rephrase the statement, for God so loved the world in the form of a question, it would not simply be what God loved, it would be who God loved. The world is meant to be seen in this text as all the people that are comprised in it. All the people that have ever lived in it from generation to generation, from age to age. God loved the world. God loved the world. His love covers the entire world. His love is essential or necessary for all of the world. He loved it all. And not only did God love the world, but he loved every particular people group in the world. Does that, does that make sense to anybody? And not only did he love every particular people group in the world, but God loved actually every particular people group even in the midst of their particular sin struggle in the world. So he loved every particular people group, and he loved every particular people group despite their sin. Now, both of those points are important. Both of those points are important. One of Satan's deadliest devices in the church today is to convince people that they are more deeply loved because of their national, ethnic, or racial pedigree. So some Americans want you to believe that God loves us more than Asians. Some whites want us to believe that God loves whites more than everybody else. Some black folks want us to believe that God loves black folk more than everybody else. But here John is speaking of a love in which God says he loves the world in its entirety, everyone. But not only does he love the world in its entirety, but he loves the world despite their merit or deservingness. One of the reasons people often believe, for example, that God has confined his love to a certain group of people more than others is because of their own false belief of their innate goodness within themselves, or in particular within their particular people group. 
You've seen this before. Come on, talk to me. You've seen this before, right? For example, I'm going to give you a peek inside of black America on a Sunday night. We're watching news, okay? And the news flashes, and something crazy happens, and they show the picture of the person that did it, and the guy's white. And some black Americans will be like, well, of course he's white. He did that. But guess what? I even have glimpses into white America. And so there'll be something that happens on the news, and we'll watch, and a picture will show up, and it'll be a white guy, or a black guy, rather, and they'll say, of course he is. I mean, of course, I mean, he's a black, I mean, of course a black guy did that. I mean, I mean, we wouldn't do that, you know? I mean, only they would do something like that. And then both of us, blacks and whites, take a picture, take a, take a news segment one night, and somebody says that guy just stepped in and suicide bombed. And we said, well, of course it's a Middle Eastern because, I mean, we wouldn't do that. Black guy wouldn't do that. White guy wouldn't do that. What's happening there? We're all sensing our own innate goodness, and we're tugging with it, aren't we? And so we love to latch on to other people groups and say, well, yeah, they, of course they'll do that because that's the kind of people that they, you know, that they produce, or that, that's the kind of people that they produce, or that's the kind of people that they produce. But then when we see our own do something, what happens? Most of the time we just kind of get quiet and say, that's a shame, I hate they did that. They're representing us so poorly. We're quick to leap at the opportunities to reflect our own goodness, right? And we're, also, and we're also very hesitant to highlight our own sinfulness. Here's a news flash for you, all right? All of us have some crazy. Are you tracking with that? Sometimes we operate like the family who has the crazy uncle back in the, in the back room that nobody wants to let out because you don't want to see that side of our family. The reality is he's a part of the family. So, yes, black people, sinful, no surprise there. White people, sinful, no surprise there. Middle Eastern, sinful, no surprise there. Asian, sinful, no None of us go to God based on our own people's inherent righteousness. God loves the world, and he loves the world despite all of the world's unrighteousness. Does that make sense? Romans 3 says this, speaking about all of our inherent unrighteousness. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. Romans 3 and 9. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. In other words, Paul charges every single person is under sin. Those that are Jewish, those that are not Jewish, every single person in the world is under sin. As it is written, he continues in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. 
In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. None is righteous. No, not one. He later on says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There are no good people groups without Christ. We all are in need of his salvation, his redemption, his restoration. If you hang your pride on the goodness of your people, you are hanging it on quicksand. Now that doesn't mean he doesn't, now to say that he loves the world and all of the wickedness or the wicked people within it doesn't mean that he loves the wickedness that comes with it, right? Which is interesting, because how can we, how can we steal, how can he love us and not love the wickedness? How can he truly despise the sin of the wicked while desiring or showing and reflecting his own mysterious love to them? Well, he does, he does. He shows us in several places. For example, in the prophets, in Ezekiel, he talks about, Ezekiel 18, he talks about the fact that he detests the wicked deeds that, that these people, particular people do, that all these, that he has done all abominations. He shall surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. But then in the same chapter, talking about the same people, he later on says, but if a wicked person turns away from all his sins that he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is just and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. That is God's love towards the wicked. That even though the wicked, he despises their wickedness, and even though the wicked, he says, if you continue down this road of wickedness, you shall perish, he still says, but I desire that you come to me. He says in Matthew chapter 23, as he looks at Jerusalem and he looks out upon Jerusalem, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Those are big accusations, that you kill those who speak on my behalf, that you stone those whom I have sent. A lot of reason for a lot of hatred there. Was God, how does God respond? He responds in this way. He says, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? He said, oh, you've done some wicked things. You've done some terrible things, but how often have I desired to bring you to myself? For God so loved the world, all the people groups, and all the people groups and all of their wickedness, even you and I. Sometimes Christians, we think we're exempt from this, right? God says in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, this is the key, children of wrath. He says every single person that has ever walked on the face of this earth because of sin initially was set aside as children of God's wrath, his holy anger. And you say, well, man, that's, 
that's pretty tough. That's pretty, that's pretty bleak for us. And yet, and yet, right after he says it, he says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us, li- uh, made us alive together in Christ Jesus. So none of us are exempt. All of us were on that side of the fence, wicked and deserving of wrath, deserving of God's holy wrath, and yet God loved us. Let's talk about the depth of that love. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. When you hear so, in John chapter 3, verse 16, it is not meant to just describe the what or the who of God's love, but it's meant to describe the weight of God's love. The word so is John's way of saying God loved the world in this particular way. This is how he loved it. God loved the world in this unique way. It should communicate an ideal of, of, of quantity, but even more so, it should communicate an ideal of spectacular death. God loved the world so much so, so unbelievably so, so uniquely so, that he did this. That he sacrificed. When speaking of love in human terms, we can say emphatically that love itself cannot stand apart from sacrifice. We can say that emphatically. In human terms, no genuine relationship of love can exist without sacrifice, pain, and even loss. So tonight, we'll be doing our block party, and we will be showing our block love, but that does not come without sacrifice, right? Many of you have sacrificed your time. Many of you have sacrificed your money. Many of you have sacrificed your resources. Many of you have sacrificed your energy and will sacrifice your energy tonight. Why? For the purposes of demonstrating love. You can't demonstrate love any other way. The hustle and bustle of shopping for school supplies. The spending of money for school supplies. The bundling of those school supplies into all of these backpacks that we're going to give out. Sacrifice. Why? For the purposes of love. And while I'm saying that, let me, let me, let me drop this nugget for any of our singles in the room. Fear the one that says they love you but rarely sacrifices. Fear the one who says they love you but is unyielding on their freedom, is unyielding on their time, is unyielding on their wallets, is unyielding on their willingness to speak sacrificially. In other words, they say whatever they want to say, whenever they want to say it. Fear the one who says they love but they give and they yield nothing. You can't love that way. Love doesn't operate that way. So when we speak in human terms, love is always demonstrated through sacrifice. However, how does the God of the universe who creates from nothing best communicate his love to us? If the God of the universe, for example, gave you a cow, 
That's a loving thing, right? It's a lot of people that pay a lot of money for cows. But the God of the universe gives you a cow, well, that, that's, a, that's a good demonstration of love, but the God of the universe makes cows all the time, right? The God of the universe, if he gave you $5,000, that's a beautiful and loving thing, but, but he's God. He literally, he really could make a money tree. The one that your mother, the one that your mother told you she doesn't own. He really could make one. So, so, so how does the God of the universe communicate love to his people? He gives you the most irreplaceable, irreplaceable possession, irreplaceable gift that he has. Not only does he give you his son, he gives you his only son. How's the God in the universe communicate love to you? He communicates love by giving you all sorts of things, of course. The home that you have, the food that you eat, the cash that you carry in your wallets, of course. Of course that's a demonstration of love. But how does he chiefly demonstrate his love to you? By giving you the one possession that cannot be replaced. The uncreated son of God, he gives to the world. How deep is God's love for you? So deep that he gives you what cannot be replaced. But, but he, he gives it to you or he gives him to us and he becomes incarnate. He walks on the earth. He becomes like you in order to empathize with you in order to know what it means to say no to sin, in order to feel the pain of whips on his back, in order to feel the pain of nails in his hands. So he becomes incarnate. He gives you his only son, and he gives you his only son to become incarnate, but he also gives you his only son to become incarnate and die. What did I just say earlier? Love is often best demonstrated through what? Sacrifice. John 15 says, greater love hath no man than to lay down his life for his friend. God shows you the depth of his love for you by giving you the best thing that he has. You understand that? Not to mention, who did we speak of earlier? We said that God loves this world, right? All of the people in it, but God loves this world despite its what? Sin, wickedness. And he loves this world despite its sin and wickedness. And so what does he do? He gives you a perfect son who deserves none of the punishment that he receives. And he takes his wrath and pours it out upon him the wrath that is due us. How deep is God's love for this world? Romans 5 says, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love 
God proves his love for us and that while we were still sinners and wicked, Christ died for us. He takes a perfect man, sacrifices him for imperfect people. So despite our constant rejection of God and our constant choosing of our own ways instead of God's ways, God still loved us enough to give us not just one of many sons, but the one and only son. And not just one to dwell with us, but one to dwell and die for us. This is what is meant in the, word, in the words, for God so loved the world. God has loved us beyond capacity for us to comprehend. He's loved us beyond capacity for us to understand and for us to grasp when we think on these things. So what do you do with this kind of love? That's, that's where the latter part of our sermon goes. What do you do with this kind of love? Verse 16, again, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So God's perfect love towards us is not only demonstrated in the who, but in the how, right? The who is Christ, the how is faith. That in and of itself is a demonstration of love. To say to you that in order to walk into eternity, despite all of the mishaps, despite all of the mistakes, despite all of the back and the forth and the, I'm never going to do it again, God. Oh, there it is. I did it again. Despite all of that. You go, you gain entry into the kingdom of God by faith, by simply trusting him. What, you, what you mean? I don't have to run 10 laps? I don't, I don't have to do 100 push-ups? I mean, what, what else do I have to do besides trust him? So it's not just a demonstration of love in the who, it's a demonstration of love even in the how that we gain entry into the presence of God. Just by believing in him, trusting him with our lives. Here's the unfortunate truth about the condition of this world. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Here's the unfortunate truth about the condition of this world. We are already condemned. God isn't coming to condemn it. God didn't come to condemn it. Christ didn't come to condemn it. And the reason that he didn't come to condemn it was because it was already condemned. Sin has already done that. Anybody ever been to a mall with escalators as kids? They don't have many. They're starting to close down, right? Most of these malls now are outdoor malls, and they're big flats, you know, but, but, but you know, some of, some of the kids in the room might not be able to have this experience many, many times anymore. But in my heyday, we had escalators, right? And so when mom, every once in a while, mom would turn her back when we were about to go up the escalator, or she would go up ahead of us. 
And when mom would go up ahead of us, it was our sacred right and duty to go to the escalator that was not going up but going down and try to walk up the escalator that's going down. Right? Am I, if I know, I'm serious. Am I the only person that's ever done this? And so, and so everybody, every, you know, mom is going up the escalator, and, and, and we get up, you know, start going, walking, you know, trying to get up there and catch up with her, and we try to catch up as, you know, quick as we could so that we could actually meet her eye to eye and look at her. Right? But you had to put a lot of momentum into going up an escalator that's going down. Because the moment you cease, the moment you stop, you didn't have to put any effort in going, in going down. It was already going down. Let me share something about the world. You don't have to put any effort into meeting the condemnation that the world will meet. Sin has already created the condemnation. And so you don't have to put any energy into it. You don't have to put any labor into it. You don't have to try to sin harder than others. You can just be on the ride. And it's going down. Christ didn't come to condemn the world. The world was already condemned. Christ came to save the world from its condemnation. And so the action, the response that we take in order to be saved from its condemnation is to trust him. To lay our lives into his hands and say, Lord, I'm walking with you. I'm leaving my life behind. I'm trusting that your way is right. And I'll go with you. So there is a response in order to be saved from this pending condemnation. But there, but there doesn't have to be any response in order to be condemned along with this pending condemnation. You don't have to do anything. Just continue to do what you're doing. Does that make sense? See, that's why it doesn't, that's why when, when, we talk, when we talk about these ideas, when we go back to ideas like, well, you know, well, hey, listen, I do some good things. I take, I take care of people. I, I, help, I help people. You know, I go, I, there's an elderly lady that lives right next door to me, and I go and I buy her groceries and bring her groceries every week. You know, and so, I mean, that, that, that should get me in, right? So, I, mean, I don't know. You, t- you tell me. You tell me. You know, when we're, when we're talking about a place that's already going down, and it doesn't really matter if you do all of that. It's still going down. And so God's love is reflected in this way, that he gives you his only son to rescue you from that condemnation. That's why, that's why Christians say that Jesus Christ is the only way. Not because they believe that they're holier or they're more special or that they do better things, but that they believe that the ship is going down anyway. And that there is only one who's out there that can save us from, its imp- from our impending doom. And you doing good things for people isn't going to cut it. Our response must be faith. With no effort at all. Listen to verse 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light unless his works should be exposed. So, so this is the judgment. The judgment is that sin has corrupted our poor, 
or has corrupted our course so deeply, right, that God's love is being demonstrated through the giving of his very best, through the giving of his son, to die in your place, to avert the appending doom, and we reject it. That's how deep sin runs through the pores of this world. That God has showed us this great demonstration of love, and we say, no, I don't want that. Because, what does it say? Why? Why do we reject God's love? It says because we love something more. We love the darkness more. We love the darkness more than we love God's love. And so we reject God's love. Let's think about it for a second. Think about if we're on a, you know, certainly this is kind of, I don't even know if I should be having this kind of conversation right now. Me and my wife are about to take a cruise. But this is the example, so we're going to go with it. Say you're on a boat. The boat starts sinking. All right? <laughs> and and um, this boat is not only sinking, but it is heading down the path towards an endless waterfall that leads to an endless pit uh, filled with fire and brimstone. All right? Go with me here, okay? So everybody at this point... We're, we're, we're in the water. People are drowning. Thousands of people on this boat are drowning, left and right, right? And we look out into the horizon, and oh my goodness, praise the Lord, a boat is coming. And it is on its way. The boat gets there just in time, right? Has to get there fast, because I can't swim, but it gets there. And it starts tossing out lifeboats. One after the other, one after the other, one after the other, one after the other. One after the other, you know, it's thousands of them, enough for every single one of us to get on. But, but, the lifeboat stays attached to the main boat, which, I mean, is all right, but I can't, you know, once I get in the boat, what, I got to go where he wants me to go? You know, why, why can't, you know, why can't, why can't you just give me the boat? Then I'll continue to take this strong current into hell. Or, I'm sorry, our waterfall, deep waterfall in our abyss. Why don't you just give me the boat? Let me just continue down this strong current. You mean to tell me that in order for me to, 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 to be saved, I got I to gotta stay connected to your boat? Let me ask you a question. If we die in that water, floating, taking that, with that strong current, taking us down to that endless waterfall, if we die, is it the main boat's fault? Anybody tracking with that? God says the reason we perish is not because he doesn't love. It's because we love the darkness more than the light. And the darkness comes disguised in all sorts of different ways, doesn't it? The darkness comes disguised as freedom. The ability to make my own decisions and do the things I want to do and go where I want to go and say what I want to say. The darkness comes disguised as fun. What kind of fun is it to live with Jesus when you can have fun doing all this other stuff? But the result is no less, the same, no less different. We reject the salvation that is freely offered 
through Christ. Men loved the darkness rather than the light. Here's what I want to here's what I want to share with you. God loves you. God poured out everything for you. He gave you everything when he gave you his son. The darkness cannot compare to the light of Jesus. The darkness has no value when compared and when stood and appraised next to the light of Christ. Do not hold on to the darkness and turn from the light that has come into the world to save you and to rescue you from its impending doom. God, we love you and thank you. Lord, I pray for those in this room who wrestle with the decisions of salvation. Lord, who wrestle with tough truths, God. And, and Lord, even I wrestle with these tough truths. But God, I can, we can wrestle with this tough truth because of an even more surpassing truth, which is you love us, and your love was communicated through your son coming into this world. Lord, I pray that there be none in this room who would turn from your son to their own way, who would continue down the path to this endless abyss that awaits simply because they rejected the love that you offered. Father, I pray that your spirit, because it is mysterious, Lord God, and we don't know how your spirit is working and communicating, even moving people to respond, but Lord, we ask and we pray that your spirit would move us to respond. That we might be saved. And that we might receive this great love in which you have loved us with. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we give you all the praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name, amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. For church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.